Hey guys, it's Alexa. I'm here alone. Um, This episode is going to be a little bit different. Obviously, there is no video and Cadence is not with me, unfortunately. She is traveling across the country and she's actually in the state of New York right now performing. So if you follow her on her um, personal Instagram or any of her social media handles, you'll you'll see some of that stuff. But she's traveling across the world doing her thing and performing per usual. So I wanted to take the chance to bring to you all an update on the Moscow, Idaho murders, particularly talking about the probable cause document. You know, this case like seriously intrigues me so much because it's it just reminds me of the Ted Bundy case with the sorority house murders and how he was able to go into that sorority house so seamlessly and murder all of those poor people of course one of them lived um and he was able to escape the house like very very easily and so this case is kind of similar before I dive deep into the details of this case I am going to go ahead and do our disclaimer so our videos and podcasts are for entertainment purposes all information discussed was found on the internet keep in mind we will talk all things sinister that may not be suitable for all audiences viewer and listener discretion is advised you know talking back to this case it is just such a wild case because even after reading the probable cause document that is 19 pages long there still isn't any motive there's no motive you can't really understand why this happened and why this happened to the poor to the poor um for innocent victims it just it doesn't make sense to me and i'm curious to see what brian coberger has to say for himself um once that information is released obviously in the future So talking a little bit of the background of the story, as we know, there are four victims, Ethan, Madison, Zaina, and Kaylee, all of which are students at the University of Idaho. And the girls lived with two other roommates, Dylan and Bethany. Dylan is going to be referred to DM throughout the rest of the story. Um, And then the four victims, um, Ethan, Madison, Zaina, and Kaylee. I'll be referring to them by their last name. So it's Ethan Chapin, Madison Mogan, Kaylee Goncalves, and Zaina Carnodal. But, you know, the two other roommates are alive, obviously. Um, they were not affected by the brutal attack um, in a way of such physical um damage or harm, right? Um, Obviously, they have been affected in all other ways, but um, nothing happened to them physically. So they lived in a six-bedroom house 
at 1122 Kings Road, um, which is literally right by Fraternity and Sorority Row. So they are so close to, um, you know, a lot of other students that are in the area that are going to the University of Idaho. Ethan Chapin, um, he was actually staying the night with his girlfriend, Zaina. So just so that we understand why he was there, he did not live at the house, but he was staying with his girlfriend. So what we knew prior to um, the probable cause document being released just the other day, um, the evening of November 12th, Mogan and Goncalves went to Corner Club downtown. So um, it was a club, a bar that they went to downtown. Obviously, they had a great night there. Chapin and Kernodal went to a party at the Sigma Chai House, which is very close to where the girls lived, um, and it's right there on campus. So the early morning of November 13th, Mogan and Goncalves went to the grub truck downtown um, after they had, you know, their night of fun. And they ordered some food, and this was about 1.41 a.m. At 1.56 a.m., they arrived home by um, a sorority shuttle. And then Chapin and Kernodal returned home a little bit before them, right around like 1.45 a.m. The two other roommates, um, DM and BF, so Mortensen and Funky, um, They got home. They were out as well that evening, but they got home right around 1 a.m. So, as we know, four victims were murdered. And prior to the probable cause document being released, it was speculated between 3 and 4 a.m. And it was also said that, um, you know, the the victims were obviously um, at the home. What we also know is a 911 call was made at 11.58 a.m. from inside the residence reporting an unconscious person. So we'll know a little more details after we get through the probable cause document. Fast forward to December 7th. And again, I'm talking all about what we know prior to the probable cause document. Moscow, Idaho police stated that they were now looking for a vehicle um, between the years of 2011 and 2013, and this vehicle was a white Hyundai Elantra. They believed that this vehicle was indeed in the area when the crime had taken place at the King's residence or at the King Road residence. Now, The probable cause document covers so many main areas of the story and particularly evidence against Brian Koberger. And this probable cause document helped the investigators and the Moscow, Idaho Police Department secure an arrest warrant for him. The document talks about the evidence, um, goes through the roommate's testimony, so DM's testimony, as well as discussing why they were looking for a white Hyundai Elantra, and it goes over the cell phone tower pings. 
So those are basically like the main areas of the probable cause document that I'm going to discuss with you today in the story. Now, the story is obviously way different than what Cadence and I normally do. Normally, we do like a drinking game and a drinking word. And obviously, I can't drink because you all know that I'm pregnant. Um, we add a little humor. You know, we, we do a lot of things fun. We make things fun. This story is obviously a lot different. Um, and it's very raw and very new. So... There will be no drinking game. Um, there will be no comedy aspect to this. I just wanted to give you all the opportunity to listen to my perspective of the probable cause document. So let's uh, dive in. So what we know is Brian Koberger is the main suspect of the four murders. I don't want to spend a lot of time on him or talking about his background or really anything about him other than what is listed in the probable cause document. So what we know about him is he's currently a student at Washington State University and he's wanting to get his master's in criminology. He applied for an internship with the Pullman Police Department back in the fall. I want to say it said like back in August or September. And he also posted a survey on Reddit asking participants to provide information so that way he could understand how emotions and psychological traits influence decision making when committing a crime. You know, I thought that was so interesting because, like, look at what he apparently did or could have done. So how did his emotions and psychological traits influence his decision-making when committing this crime? Obviously, he is innocent until proven guilty, but this probable cause document screams to me that he is guilty, that he is the prime suspect, and he is the one who committed these murders. So I'm going to start with DM's testimony throughout the document. She stated that she heard what she thought was going to call this playing with her dog at around 4 a.m. She then stated that she thought that she heard Goncalves saying, there's someone here. She later said that she heard what she thought was crying coming from Kernodal's room and then a male voice saying, it's okay, I'm going to help you. At 4.17 a.m., a whimper and a loud thud was heard on the security camera next door from the next door residence, which was about 50 feet from Kernodal's room. This security camera also captured her dog barking right around that same time. So just from this little bit of information that we are seeing, something happened between 4 and 4.17 a.m. to both of the girls. What we also know from DM's testimony is that she said that she opened her door when she heard crying 
She then saw a man dressed in black clothing with a mask that covered his mouth and nose, and he was walking towards her. She said he was about 5'10ish or a little taller, athletic build with bushy eyebrows. She said he then walked right past her. She was literally frozen in shock, and he continued to walk past her towards the sliding black sliding glass door where he exited the home. She said that she went back into her room and locked herself in the room. So what we know is somebody indeed was in the home. Somebody indeed had hurt these people and murdered these people. And one of the roommates saw the suspect and saw the person who did this. Continuing with the document, I want to talk a little bit about the evidence. Um, So based off of the evidence that's in the probable cause document, we know now that the murders occurred between 4 a.m. and 4.25 a.m. the morning of November 13th. Detectives found DNA on the bottom of a tan leather snap button enclosure of a knife sheath. So what that is is basically like a pouch that you store a knife in or that you carry a knife in. They also found a shoe print. And this shoe print was similar to a Vans type shoe print. And this was outside of DM's bedroom. The knife sheath had Kabar, K-A-B-A-R, and USMC for the United States Marine Corps on it, plus with the United States Marine Corps symbol. This sheath was found on Mogan's bed. So was she the primary target? I mean, Koberger wasn't in the military. So where did he get this utility knife from and this utility knife sheath from? On December 28th, The Idaho State Lab reported that a DNA profile obtained from the trash of the the Pennsylvania residents, so his parents' residents, and the DNA left on the sheath of of the knife was a 99.9998% match. So either way, If he wants to claim his innocence that he did not murder these four people, how did his sheath of the knife have his DNA on it? And how was this in their home? So now I want to talk about the white Hyundai uh, Elantra. So... As we know, based off of the document, a white sedan was observed on King Road neighborhood starting at 3.29 a.m. that morning and ending at 4.20 a.m., so about an hour. The vehicle passed the residence three different times, and a fourth time we can see it being seen at 4.04 a.m. driving eastbound and then in front of the residence. So on this camera they saw... Um, The vehicle had attempted to park or even turn around in the road. The vehicle is then not seen again until 4.20 a.m. actually leaving the area in that neighborhood at a very high rate of speed. And this white vehicle was then identified as a 2011 to 2016 
Hyundai Elantra. What we also know about the vehicle is the vehicle is seen traveling back towards Washington State University later that morning in Pullman, Washington. Fast forward to November 29th. The Washington State University police queried white Hyundai Elantras that were registered at Washington State University because the FBI was now involved. And obviously we know that these four innocent people were murdered and this was the the vehicle that was in question. It was determined that there was a 2015 white Hyundai Elantra with Pennsylvania license plate registered to Brian Koberger. As we know from the probable cause document, they were looking for the specific vehicle with the Pennsylvania license plate. It was also noted in the document that there was no front license plate. And Washington requires a front and back license plate, as does Idaho. But Pennsylvania only requires a back or one license plate on the vehicle. So what we also know outside of um, the vehicle is Brian's physical appearance in this probable cause document matches the description of the roommate of what the roommate said. Brian is six foot tall, 185 pounds with bushy eyebrows. But back to the vehicle. The vehicle was seen on December 13th in Loma, Colorado. The vehicle was also seen on December 15th in Hancock County, Indiana. As we know now, there is um, video footage of a police officer pulling over the vehicle on the highway, which I'll talk a little bit about that later. And then December 16th, the vehicle is then in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania, and this is where his family lives. So the next part of the document that I want to talk about is the cell phone tower pings. As we know how this works, um, previously in the past, you know, cell phone tower pings gave a very large radius. But now most people carry smartphones and all smartphones have GPS capability. So therefore, the cell phone tower GPS pings are super accurate And normally within a 10-foot distance of that known location. So let's say like you share your location with your mom or your best friend and they want to look and see where you're at on the Find My iPhone app or any other application that they're using. It will literally show them where you are within a 10-foot radius. So you could easily find that person. So keep that in mind. So, back to November 13th, the morning of the murders. Between 3 and 5 a.m., there was zero cell phone tower ping near the residence where the murders took place. So, what this means is Brian could have easily left his phone elsewhere or turned off his phone. What we do know later is that he had his phone. So, he either turned it off or he put it in airplane mode So that way it would disable any of that GPS tracking through cellular data. However, 
At 2.42 a.m., the phone pinged at his apartment. At 2.47 a.m., the phone pinged again southeast of his apartment, meaning that he had left and was driving. There isn't another ping until about 4.48 a.m. near the Idaho State Highway 95, which is south of Moscow, Idaho. What we also know is between 4.50 a.m. and 5.26 a.m., his phone is consistently pinging, continued to driving, driving south on Idaho State Highway. So he was heading back to Pullman, Washington, or heading back to his apartment. What we know about Pullman, Washington and Moscow, Idaho, is it's typically about a 15-minute drive. So why did it take him over 30 minutes to get home? What was he doing? At 5.30 a.m., his phone pings back to his apartment. So what we know is that he left the residence around 4.20 in the morning and didn't arrive back home until 5.30 in the morning. Later that morning, his phone pinged traveling back to Moscow, Idaho and specifically pinging at the residence where the murders took place between 9.12 and 9.21 a.m. He was then back at his apartment at 9.32 a.m. So he was clearly wanting to drive by to either like admire his work or possibly see if the police were there at the residence yet and to see if anything had been reported, which to me is just sickening. And like, I literally have no words other than that being sickening. Continuing with, you know, talking about the phone pings and the evidence, what we also know from this probable cause document is he had visited the residence 12 different times prior to the morning of the murders. And all of these times that he visited or drove by the house was either in the late evening or early morning hours, except for one time. So that just tells you he was clearly stalking the victims prior to the attack. And this is clear motive for the murder. So it was, we can see that motive and we can see that it's premeditated. You know, Regarding this document, I have so many questions. Seriously, so many questions. The roommate who said that she saw the suspect in the home around 4.17 a.m., why didn't she call 911 until almost noon? And why did she call her friends to come over before calling 911? I don't want to say that she's involved in any way because I highly, highly doubt that. However, it's very suspicious. I want to give her the benefit of the doubt and say that she was just absolutely terrified and in shock, which I would be too. I can't even imagine or like put myself in that position. I don't even know what I would do. Maybe she didn't know what to do. Maybe she didn't want to associate the man in the home to something negative. You know, 
Our brains can do crazy things to protect us from danger. Maybe she fell asleep until then. And then whenever she woke up, she woke up in a panic because she realized what had just happened in her home and needed her closest friends to help her call 911. You know, another question that I have is Brian Koberger's father. He clearly went out to Washington to help his son go back to Pennsylvania to go back home. He drove across the country with him from Washington State to Pennsylvania. And we know that because he was present on the traffic stop video on December 15th in Hancock County, Indiana. If you haven't seen that video, I highly recommend it. I did share it on our Instagram um, story the other day, which I'll probably share it again. Um, But the video is just very, very suspicious. Both, you know, his dad and Brian were acting very strange. When the officer had asked them where they were going or where they were even coming from, they said that they were coming from WSU. And the officer is like, well, what's that? And they said, Washington State University. And he's like, okay, well, where are you heading to? And they said that they were heading back to Pennsylvania because of a mass shooting back, back at the university. The officer even states in the video he hadn't even heard of anything like that. He didn't hear of a mass shooting at the university. So why did they say that? Does the dad know something that we don't know? Does the dad know what his son did? Is he protecting his son in some way, shape, or form? I have so many questions about that. I also want to know why. Why these four victims... What did he have against them? Who was he targeting? Did he know them? How did he know them from the first time he stalked them back in August? How did he find their residence? Did he follow them? Also the dog. Why didn't he kill the dog? I mean, the dog was clearly barking whenever he was in the room. Is it because he's vegan? And why didn't he kill the other two roommates, especially DM who saw him? He literally walked past her. I have so many questions and I'm so curious as to how this murder happened. I'm also curious to see what develops within this case. You know, he is claiming his innocence, which, I mean, whatever floats his boat, do whatever you want to do. But as we hear from this episode and as we see in the 19-page probable cause document, all of the evidence points back to him. So I'm curious to see what happens. I'll be following this case. And obviously, as there are more developments, I'll definitely do another episode. Thank you all for your continued support with Something Sinister podcast. Some changes are going to be coming soon. Not really sure exactly what those are, but let me know what you think about this episode. I'm curious to see how you like it um, and curious to hear your thoughts. As you know, we always appreciate five-star reviews and ratings. And of course, we appreciate your support. As always, stay sinister. Stay sinister.